Open your Bibles this morning. I hope you're having them with you. You should open them to the book of Nehemiah. We are going to finish out the last part of chapter 12 of Nehemiah this morning and then read the first uh, chunk, a little chunk of Nehemiah 13. Now, we've actually sort of been transitioning. I don't know if you've, if it's been made, if you've been made aware of it. I've, I've said too much about it, but we've been transitioning into the conclusion of this book for the last little bit already, actually. Um, what we have been reading about is not necessarily uh, things that are happening chronologically anymore, but things that Nehemiah is looking back at at the time of writing everything down, and he's looking back and, uh, and, and describing or tying together some things. Uh, we, we know this morning we've really te- uh, totally entered into the phase of conclusion because we're going to have three sections as we close this out. Each one of the three sections, Nehemiah ends with this phrase uh, of some form of this phrase of, remember me, oh my God. And that's really, I, I, if you're looking on your handout to the back side of your bulletin, that's what I've entitled these last next, the next uh, this one and the next two will be the same title, because it's Nehemiah tying things together. And I think we'll see this morning as we read through the text that there's a reason why he, each one of them come with some specific things in mind, uh, that he's wanting to make sure that he is pointing out uh, that, that he's done, but he is also giving his appeal to God. So uh, without... Uh, talking too much more, let's just jump into the text. We're going to start reading in Nehemiah 12, verse 44. We'll finish chapter 12, and we'll read all the way through verse 14 of Nehemiah 13. And they all uh, hang together here, as we're going to see here in a bit. On that day, it says in verse 44, on that day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron." Now verse 1 of chapter 13, on that day, same phrase as we began in 44, on that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, it says in verse 8, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. 
I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shalamiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zachor, son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." Lord God, we do this every Sunday, but I don't want to skip it because it's important. You inspired, you brought about, you wrote this text. You brought about the events that happened that are described in this text. You were controlling and sovereign over them. And you today want to speak to us still through your living word. So we ask you to break the word for us. May the Holy Spirit illuminate to us what you want us to know. Again, I'm so grateful, Father, that you do this both through my mouth and you do it directly by your spirit into our ears and our hearts their brains. May we be receptive in Jesus' name. Amen. So this is a concluding text. We are looking to see what Nehemiah has to say as he ties all of this together as to all the things that happened. We've been through this long journey of them, of him discovering the state of Jerusalem and its walls and, and being, uh, being, really broken about that and praying and fasting and asking leave of the king. And he comes, and we find out at the very beginning, by the way, that he came in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So we know he was there uh, for uh, 12 years through this first phase of many of these things that are happening. And then he left again. That's what we found out here in in the text today. And as they rebuilt the wall and as they did some other things that, quite frankly, I think were more important than rebuilding the wall, which is the things that were happening inside of them, Nehemiah is now tying all this together. Now, I think to make sense of this text, I'm actually going to jump into the middle and say that this is sort of the thing that's going to help us make sense. I'm going to walk through and kind of just show you the structure of the text so that we understand it a little better. All the way in verse 6 of uh, chapter 13 is when we find out that while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. And we want to find out what the while this was, which that's stated in verse 4 and 5, the thing that Eliashib did. But before we get to that, he has to tell us some things that he was doing before that. When we read in verse 44, and again in verse 1 of chapter 13, this phrase, on that day, that's not referring to a specific day. It's referring to, like, during that time, back at that time. And again, he's looking at, he's wrapping things together, and he's saying, when I came, and when we started redoing these things, during that time... I did a few things. And he mentions two things specifically. We're going to find out why here in just a little bit. So the first thing he mentions is, on that day, during that time, when I came back to... Now, really, honestly, this actually started when Ezra came, not just when Nehemiah came, but Nehemiah kept it going. He says, men were appointed. And it goes through all these details. And I'm not going to read them again, but through these details of these men and where they were at and what they did and the things that they were doing. But what it has to do with is that they reinstituted the temple uh, worship and the service that happened in the temple and all the things that were supposed to happen. I don't know how often we think about the fact, by the way, that there were a lot of people involved in, in, the, in the daily activities of the temple. A lot of people. 
There's a whole families of people that their job was just passed down through heritage, through lineage. Their job was to be in the temple and to serve there. Take the Levites, for example. We always hear about the Levites. And you could read it, by the way, if you would go back and read in uh, 1 Chronicles chapters 23 through 26, you would get an even more in-depth uh, uh, depiction of what all these people were doing. All their roles and all their services. And, and they were to keep the sacrifices going and the candles burning and the wood stocked and, and a place to store all the stuff that was there and to categorize all the stuff that was there and make sure the right stuff was done at the right time to go out and collect the tithes. And this is happening all throughout the year. They had some major moments when it happened at the end of harvest and things like that. But, they, but it was happening all throughout the year. Now, I don't know if you know this, but the Levites received a portion of the people's tithes so that they didn't have to be out in their own fields working. That was their pay. That's how they survived. We see, by the way, they got a little messed up, right? Because what you read in verse 10 there is when he finds out the Levites hadn't been given their portions, then what did they have to do? We read it. What did they have to do? What? They all went back to the fields because they had to survive, right? That's part of the problem we're going to get into here. So there was, there, there's Levites, there's gatekeepers, there's singers, there's priests, there's all kinds of servants and ministers and people involved. And those things had slowly over the years, if you would read through Chronicles, uh, through Kings and Chronicles, sort of overlaying of that story, those things had slowly over the years fallen by the wayside. And of course, during the exile, none of it was happening. And as the exiles come back, and they return, this temple worship is reinstituted. That's what verses 44 through 47 are telling us. It's, we know, we just read the book. It's not the only thing Nehemiah did, right? But it's one of the things that Nehemiah did. He said, I made sure that the people came back. Again, that's why I believe there's such emphasis given in some of the preceding texts we just covered in, in cataloging the heads of households, in knowing who was supposed to be part of that, in bringing them in and saying, no, you're going to live here in the city, and, and establishing these schedules for people to bring wood in and to bring their stuff in, all stuff we covered at, uh, pre, or read about in previous times. So Nehemiah says, first of all, during my time here, what we saw happen is we saw a reinstitution of the temple service and all the temple roles that were happening. The second thing he says, this is now in verse uh, 1 of chapter 13, he says, and also while I was here, and we know all about this, starting way back in chapter 8, we just, we spent a ton of time with this. Also while I was here, we began to read the book of the law. And we had several climactic moments where we read it in the square and everybody was there and there was weeping and there's all kinds of response. But by indication of the text, I think I shared this before, by indication of the text, that continued. There wasn't just the one time where they all gathered, but there continued to be public reading of the law. And during those moments, or at some point during that time, they would have read from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 to 5, which told them that you should not ever let an Ammonite or a Moabite into the temple. Seems rather harsh, right? But God instructed Moses to tell the Israelites that you should not let a Moabite or an Ammonite come into the temple. It is my sacred place, and when you, my people, came into Israel, instead of meeting you with bread and water, as this text here today says, instead of meeting you favorably, what happened? If you know this story, this is probably a story that most, many of us know from the Old Testament. What happened? Instead of meeting favorably, well, you can also cheat by just paying attention to what we read today. What, did, what, did, what, did, what, did, what happened? What did Barak do? Somebody say it louder. Make sure you're paying attention. You know I don't like to be up here just, I mean, I do fine just talking up here by myself, but I like to have some interaction. 
It was a joke. You can laugh. He wanted Balaam to pronounce a curse on him. And he tried more than once, right? Actually, he tried lots of times because at first Balaam wouldn't even come. But even when he came, he still had to try three times, three more times, for Balaam to try to utter a curse. And as the text points out, it didn't work, right? Because every time, instead of curse, what comes out? Blessing instead. Because of their insistence of these people that they did not want the Israelites there or blessed. Pay attention. Pay attention because there's consequences to our choices. If, let me finish my statement. Because of their insistence of that, God said, I don't want any of them to come into my presence. Ever. Listen, if I were to drag that into today, if I were to pull the story of the Moabites, the Ammonites, uh, it actually mentions Midianites back there. This is found in Numbers chapter 22 through 24 if you want to read up on it. If I were to bring that into today, I would liken it to when God tries repeatedly uh, to bring something of him into our lives and we repeatedly try to say, I'm going to curse it. I'm going to push it away. I'm going to say no. To, I'm going to harden my heart to it. Because if you and I were thinking about that, you would think that when it began to happen once or twice or the third time or the fourth time or the fifth time or the sixth time, one of those times it would sink in and say, there's something about this God and there's something about what he's trying to do that I better stop resisting. And they didn't, did they? They kept on pushing. Actually, as we found out this week in our small group, we're reading out of Revelation and Balaam is continued to be blamed there, not just for that incident, but for drawing all of Israelite the Israelites, all of Israel, away into idolatry through the Moabites and the Ammonites and the connection that was established there. As I think is pretty clear from our study of Nehemiah already, God is rather concerned with the mixing together of what is his and what is from the world, from what is flesh, what is from Satan. We would do well to pay attention to things like this. Nehemiah says, we were reading from the book of the law, and when they, when they discovered that that was going to happen, that that, was, that that was true, how it was supposed to be, they, dis, they separated themselves. And we actually read about that in Nehemiah chapter 8, 9, 10, and those verses where they led up to the covenant they were signed. They separated themselves from the foreigners. They said, if that's what God said, you know, they had this unique, they had this unique an incredible sensitivity to the Word of God at that point in Nehemiah's time frame that, that I think we should long for. Because they read it and they were like, oh, that's what it says? we got to do that. How many times do you, do, do you approach the Word of God like that? Do you read it and be like, that's what it says? I have to do that. Or do we approach it and say, ah, I can find something else maybe that says it something differently that, I don't, that doesn't say it quite the same way. Or I was listening to this one guy and he, he explained it a different way and so I, I don't think I have to listen to that like that. They were sensitive to and they immediately separated themselves. Two things that Nehemiah points out for a reason. Because when he says in verse 4 and verse 5, he says, Now before this Eliashib, who was the priest, and if you would go back to last week's text, we read, we read the order of the uh, Levite, the, the heads of the Levites. It was Jeshua, who was during Zerubbabel, and then Joiakim, which was through the most of time of Nehemiah, and later at the end of Nehemiah's was his son uh, Eliashib. You can read that in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 10. It's the order of, of the descendants of the, the heads of the Levites. Eliashib, who tells, it tells us in this text that he had prepared for Tobiah. Now, who is Tobiah? Do you remember anything about Tobiah? 
We talked about Tobiah quite a bit, actually, Nehemiah. So who is Tobiah? Someone tell me. Let's do a little quick review. Who is Tobiah? What do you know about Tobiah? He was against building the wall. Number one, when we read about every single time it's mentioned in the book of Nehemiah of the opposition against the, building, the rebuilding of the wall, his name is mentioned. There are a few other names that kind of float in and out. Tobiah's name is always mentioned. What else do you know about Tobiah, by the way? He is an Ammonite. When you read it, interesting here, it doesn't say that, does it? But if you read about Tobiah earlier, again, every time it says, and Tobiah the Ammonite. You start seeing some connections made about where this text is going to go, why Nehemiah is talking about this. Tobiah the Ammonite, who at every turn resisted what God was doing. And what I just read to you, listen, what I just read to you, what did Eliashib do? He was the leader of the Levites. He says here, he was the guy who was in charge of the chambers of the house of our God. And what did he do? You tell me in your own words. Again, I want to make sure you're paying attention, make sure you're awake, make sure you're tracking with the text. What did he do? He took out, now what was, he had storerooms, right? And what was supposed to be in those storerooms? Well, the stuff we read about in verses 44 through 47, all, this, all the tithes and the offerings and the treasures and all the stuff they were supposed to tithe and give was supposed to be in the storerooms. And instead, he took it all out and he brought Tobiah, the Ammonite, into the temple. And according to the text, he had household things there. Now, my guess is, my guess is Tobiah, of course, did not live in Jerusalem. I don't know that he was there full time. My guess is he lived some distance away. And when he traveled to Jerusalem, that's where he got to stay. Now, there's one little clue tucked into this text, too, as to this big question that I think should be looming in all of our heads at this point. Why would Eliashib do that? Did you say something? Why, why did Eliashib do that? Merlin went like this, money, quite likely, but did you catch what it says here? Read verse four. Now before this, I didn't put it all on the screen, so you, you can't cheat and look behind me. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah. We're not sure exactly how that is, but uh, I made some of those connections earlier when we talked about these guys, because it talks about, uh, way back when we talked about the opposition, that there were a number of people that were, that were connected to Tobiah, had, had connections to him. Uh, most likely, uh, his daughter was married to Tobiah, or else one of Tobiah's children were married to Elijah. So I, I, don't, I don't know if I know exactly which, way the, uh, which one was older, but I'm guessing there was a marriage there. There was a connection. They were in-laws to each other. And if humans back in that day were anything like humans in this day, there sometimes is the unfortunate idea that when we are in leadership or in charge over other people that the rules that apply to them don't apply to us. And I know immediately what happens is it's really easy for us to think of other leaders over us who do exactly that, and it's not so easy for us to think about how we do the very same thing with people that we see as under us in some way. Elias, Eliashib, sorry, was related to Tobiah and he brought him in and brought him in this place. Now, one thing we should see to make this maybe make sense, and not, maybe, maybe you didn't get thrown off by this, but the first part of this verse says, now before this, which uh, 
to us, often the word before is a statement of time, right? Like if I uh, went and got a drink before I came and preached, you would understand me to mean that I went first there and then came second here, right? But that's actually not, I mean, it can be used like that, but we should not take that word in the sense of before. It, we should take it in the sense of in the midst of or in the face of. It's actually, literally, it's the word panim in Hebrew. You don't need to know that word, but it, that word panim means face, in the face of. Let me give you another example where this uh, verse is used, or this word is used, exact same word. Genesis 6, verse 11. Hopefully this rings, uh, rings some bells for you. Way back, we just started the story of Noah, by the way. Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. If you were to read that in the King James, I put it up in the ESV. Uh, if you read that in the, in the King James, it would say, now the earth was corrupt before God. Now, I think we all understand when it says before God, that doesn't mean that it was corrupt like before God existed, like in time, right? It didn't mean that before God existed, the earth was corrupt. That's not what it means at all, right? You understand that, right? Good, because nothing existed before God, <laughs> so you know that. Make sure we get our theology straight here. It means in the midst of or in the face of God. While God was doing what he was doing, the earth was corrupt in the face of that, in the face of God. That's why it says in the ESV, in God's sight. That's how we should read this. In the face of the people of Israel restoring the temple worship and getting all these jobs going again and having all this stuff starting to click like it's supposed to and recognizing that they're supposed to be separated from the Ammonites and they're not supposed to be in the temple and that there's all this stuff they're starting to understand in the face of that, in the midst of that, sort of as opposed to that, Eliashib took this man, Tobiah, and he took stuff out of the temple storerooms and moved Tobiah's stuff in. And this happened... As we started off at the very beginning, this happened while Nehemiah was not here. So the 12 years happened, the rebuilding of the wall, the restoration of all kinds of things, the, 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 the reinstitution of all kinds of things, and then uh, Nehemiah left. And we have the indication that when Nehemiah left, then things began to change slightly again, that Eliashib felt free to do something that he probably knew he should not do, but no one was there to call him out on it. So, Nehemiah, let's go to the second half of our sermon now. So, Nehemiah says, after some time, this is picking up right in the end of uh, verse 6 there, going to verse 7. After some time, I asked leave of the king, and I came back to Jerusalem. And when I discovered, when I came back, I discovered this evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. He discovered that Eliashib had done something that he should not have done. Now, let me insert before I go on. Let me insert that uh, there's, a, there's a leadership principle here that I've been trying to point out, leadership things. So let me just, just point out that a godly leader keeps people accountable. He gave them instructions. This is exactly what happened. He gave them instructions. Here's how it's supposed to work. Here's who you're supposed to separate from. Here's how all this stuff. And then he left. And when he left, things started to kind of, kind of waver, fall apart, not quite be followed like they're supposed to. And he came back and he said, now I'm not just going to come back and say, oh, things are still going okay, but maybe not so great, but we'll just kind of let that slide. He says, no, I gave you specific instructions and I asked you to do specific things and it's not happening and I'm not okay with that. What we see happen with Nehemiah is he takes clear, instant action, doesn't he? Very clear and very instant. Look what it says. I was very angry, Nehemiah says. I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. I walked in there, and I grabbed his stuff, and I threw it out. I said, I'm done with that. That's not supposed to happen. Woo. I think he felt pretty strongly about it. Don't you think so? Again, we can take lessons, right? I can take lessons. Most of you know me probably well enough to know that that, that doesn't normally fit things like me. I don't, I don't get 
as fired up. I'm, I'm a lot more easygoing, tend, I tend to be. I like to please people a lot more. I, don't, I, I, I try to find more diplomatic ways to do things most times. And I say there's time and place for that. But I also have to recognize there's times when Nehemiah pointed, that's why we had the, by the first two sections, by the way, 44 through 47 in chapter 12 and 1 to 3 in chapter 13, because Nehemiah is making a point. Two specific things that I instituted that got broken. You know, you, I may not know if I pointed that out. When, to, when Elijah brought Tobiah in, he broke both of those, right? Because he, he interrupted the temple worship and, the, and what the temple servants were supposed to be doing. They couldn't no longer do that because the storehouses were taken for somebody's house. And he let an Ammonite into the temple, which he shouldn't have done. So both those things were broken. That's why those are the two things mentioned. And Nehemiah says, I will not stand for that. There's a symmetry there, by the way. If you're reading the sentence here, verse 8 and verse 9, he throws the household furniture. Now, the word in Hebrews is the word translated most often as vessels. He throws the household vessels of Tobiah out. He purifies it, and then he brings in the vessels of the house of God. Actually, if you would read that in Hebrew, there's a, there's a, there's a symmetry there because it talks about house, the baith, and then the vessels. I don't remember what that word is right now off the top of my head. And then he purifies it, and he brings in the vessels of the baith, the house of God. So he took immediate action. But not just that, because he notices that not only did an Ammonite come in where he wasn't supposed to, but that disrupted the entire temple stuff that was supposed to happen. And all the Levites that had been here when I left are now back home on their home farms making livings. And it shouldn't be so. And he goes to the leaders, the other officials, the, the Jewish officials, and he says, why is the house of God forsaken? How could you let this happen? How could you let this happen? It reminds us, by the way, of the zeal that Jesus himself had for the temple, right? We could read this from a couple of different gospels. I'm going to read out of Matthew chapter 21. Jesus walks into the temple. He enters the temple. This is from verses 12 and 13. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And in many ways, I think we see Nehemiah here in this closing section. He doesn't know this yet, because remember, he's making this summary long before Jesus walked on the earth. But in many ways, we see that he is being a forerunner for Jesus, a type of Jesus. He's restoring and rebuilding the nation of Israel. Now, Jesus, of course, came to uh, open up what God is doing, not just to the Israelites, but to all of us. But as he's doing that, he's holding the leaders accountable. And one of his particular passions is that the house of God is honored for what it's supposed to be. That the worship of God goes on as God asks it to be done. That people are paying attention. That they're not too busy doing other things, but that they're paying attention and that the worship of God is continuing as it ought to continue. And when it's not, to say, why is God's house being forsaken? Why is the worship of God being forsaken? Again, we see that the, a godly leader held them accountable, and he took immediate action. I've covered one of those before already, so I didn't put it in here again. He took immediate action. And when he had it corrected, you notice there, there's a couple uh, little sentences there at the end where he appoints some men who he calls reliable, or that word may be translated faithful. He, he appoints some reliable or faithful men to continue and no longer, uh, so that the note doesn't happen again. He removed, in some sense, he removed Elishab from at least control over those rooms. He said, no, no, these guys are not going to take care of it because they're going to do what I asked them to do. And we see that a godly leader delegates 
the work to faithful and reliable people. This is something that leaders should do. I can again tell you, I, I don't know if you know things like this, or I, I have things going on in my, in my head as I lead this church here. And uh, a particular struggle of mine, I think, is to, is to do this, is to properly delegate the work to faithful, reliable people. I'm sure some of it happens. I'm also sure I could do a better job. There's a whole lot of good, faithful people here. Now, we know that's a two-way street, right? You can't uh, have people do things if they're, not, if they're not willing to, if they would rather not participate. But I'm suspecting that many times there'd be things that I could have other people do that uh, would be good, would be right to do. A godly leader delegates, delegates the work to faithful and reliable people. And that brings me to my, the final sentence I want to come to this morning. Verse 14, I told you it's the title of my next, uh, uh, this one of the next two sermons after this yet. Remember me, oh my God. Remember what I have done. And this time he specifically points out what he's wanting God to remember. Remember the work I have done concerning this, the house of God and the, and the temple worship and, and being separated from the Ammonites and, and paying attention, being obedient to the word of God. Remember this, what I've done. Don't wipe out these good deeds and remember what I've done for the house of God and for his service, for the service of the house of God. God, remember I don't know if you have stopped to think about this, but I am fairly certain. We read things in pretty, it's a pretty tight space, right? Now, it took us some time to cover it, but it's because we waited, we only did it once a week. But we read this in pretty, pretty, pretty tight chronology, right? But I just told you that Nehemiah was there for 12 years, then he left and he came back again. I am fairly certain there were moments or times when Nehemiah became discouraged over the lack of progress. You know, we read things and it says they, they read and then this happened, this happened. And we read like it just happened just like that. But my guess is it took some time to bring the heads of households back in and to get them convinced that this is what they should be doing and this is how they should be doing it. I'm guessing the lack of progress or the slowness of that sometimes discouraged him. And Nehemiah, I believe, is displaying his theology here, theology that's good for us to, to also uh, dig down into and believe, is that ultimately there's only one person that we will answer to for the things we've done. It will not be based upon the people's responses or obedience to the things that God has asked us to do. It will be based on whether we were obedient or not. And as such, he's crying out to God and saying, God, remember these things I've done. Remember them. He's pleading God. Now, I don't know how you take this because this could be a good thing or a bad thing in your life, right? Would you feel comfortable this morning crying out to God and pleading to him that he remembers the things you've done. Would that be a good thing or a bad thing? Now, that came out as a theoretical question, perhaps. The reality is we know Nehemiah's words, we know they're actually true, right? Because Paul wrote these words in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. In other words, what I just told you is the theoretical question I just asked you is actually true, whether you like it or not. God won't forget. Therefore, it's not as if I should ask you, would you be okay if you would plead to God this morning to remember what you've done? I am telling you, God does know what you have done. And someday you will stand before him and answer for that.
I don't back away from the fact that it could be good or bad, <laughs> right? That's what the verse, that's what Paul has just said, whether it's good or evil. These are things we're going to carry through the rest of our conclusion time, but I'm going to tell you my constant endeavor is to bring this conversation back to us today. So as we conclude our time, as we wrap together our time of taking a look at the places where there's holes in our walls, where there's a breakdown in our identity, where there's something that should be restored, where there's a protection that should go back in place for us personally or for our families or for our church, as we've thought about those things, as we've hopefully taken time to rebuild some of those things, as we've recognized that the true forming of God, the identity of God's people comes as we come to the word and respond in obedience to it, as we tie that together, that we can, in good faith and with clean hearts and with uh, clean hands and pure hearts, as the psalmist says, we can come to God and say, remember us, God, for the things that we have done. God, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for this book of Nehemiah. Thank you for the way that you have spoken to us from it. As we continue to conclude this over the next couple of weeks, God, I pray that uh, there, would con- there would still be your ongoing work in us about these things, these subjects. That there's still things that, are, that you're poking around in our heads and our hearts or, or trying to work out of us in obedience. That you would press in and continue to press in and that we would continue to be faithful to that. Or perhaps maybe I should say we would start being faithful to that. As you knock on the door of our hearts and our minds, as we have conversations together with each other, Lord, that you would use it as a catalyst for establishing our identity. We are torn We are torn in our culture around us. We are actually asked by our culture to identify with this side or this side, right or left, liberal or conservative, this or that. Give us the grace, God, to refuse and say, neither. I am a child of God. I'm part of his kingdom. Help us, Father. Help us. Thank you for your word, both what we are teaching through on Sunday mornings, but thank you that we have your word and have access to it and for the life it brings to us. It points us to Jesus Christ, and we want to pursue and come to him. He is living water, living bread, light, truth, the way. He's the door. He's the gate. He's the shepherd. As it turns out, we know that he also was the sacrifice. He was the sheep. All that is to say, Jesus, you were everything. May you be formed in us, Christ. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, God. Thank you for this body. Thank you for their desire to walk faithfully before you. Thank you that there are faithful and reliable people here. We continue to ask for your grace that we may rely upon you. I am quite confident, God, we don't, I don't, we don't get everything right. That we can always grow in our devotion to you, in our service to you. Thank you for the grace that we stand in. Thank you that we can trust in you that you will finish what you've started, that you will keep that which we've entrusted to you until that day. And we ask, God, that that day may come soon.
We long to be united with you, Jesus, in every way. No longer by faith, but in reality. Thank you. We praise you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.